Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Professor of Psychology, Dr. Kate Sweeney. Kate earned her PhD in psychology from the University of Florida and currently runs the Life Events Lab at the University of California, Riverside, where her research focuses on the psychology of uncertainty with a focus on waiting and worry. One of my main takeaways from my discussion with Kate is that humans are not well prepared to deal with moments of uncertainty. Many of the default methods we employ to reduce discomfort from waiting are ineffective. Additionally, Kate's work on uncertainty fits nicely with other research, suggesting that it is often better to move towards uncomfortable feelings, not away from them. Just as with stress and other flavors of negative emotions, the more we see them as functional and the less we see them as things that need to be combated, the better off we will be in the long run. If you are a chronic worrier, or you are anticipating a life event that might involve a high-stakes waiting period with potential downside, you will definitely want to listen to what Kate has to say. Enjoy. Okay, today I am joined by Kate Sweeney. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, So your research focuses on the psychology of uncertainty with a focus on waiting and worrying. Um, Worrying kind of falls into this little family of words that are similar yet different that sort of describe negative emotions. So you see anxiety and stress. Uh, To start, could you explain how worry fits in and, and why is it different from things like anxiety or stress? They certainly overlap. And in fact, people define worry differently across our field. So there's not necessarily one fully agreed upon definition. When I think about worry, I think about it as kind of a pseudo emotion. So it's a combination of thoughts and emotions that really make up worry. The thoughts, and some people say this is exactly what worry is, and they take the emotion out of it completely. Um, But worry certainly involves repetitive Uh, kind of um, looping thoughts about the future, about negative possibilities in the future. That's definitely a hallmark of worry. Um, I have yet to experience worry in my life that didn't come along with a pretty big dose of anxiety or one of its cousins. And so to me, I think worry really is that combination of those thoughts about the future that you really can't control combined with a feeling of anxiety. Um, Stress is a much broader term. And so all of that kind of comes into the bigger umbrella of stress. Okay. So how about the function of worry, because, you know, I think uh, to, to the lay individual, you might think that all negative emotions are harmful and we just need to get rid of them. Uh, is there is there an upside to worry? Does it does it have some sort of function that can be helpful or is it um, generally speaking something to be avoided? Yeah, worry has a pretty bad reputation, and I certainly understand why that is. Um, Stepping back a little bit, there's an idea about emotions, and it's one that I subscribe to, that we call functionalism. And that's just kind of a fancy word for saying that emotions do things for us. We have, as humans, a very rich emotional life. That won't come as a surprise to anyone who's been a human for a bit. Uh, Lots of different emotions, lots of them, all of the time. 
Uh, and the reason we we think we functionalists think that that happened, evolutionarily speaking, is because emotions, all of them, do us more favors than they do us harm, at least kind of over the whole span of human uh, existence. And so, just to bring that down to the you know today level of a person who feels worry. When we think about worry, what we suspect happened is that our ancestors who felt worried about things that might happen to them that might harm them probably lived longer than those who were really blasé about the possible risks to their life. In short, worrying keeps us alive. That doesn't make it pleasant, but it's doing us a lot of favors while it's making us a little bit miserable. Um, and if you think about worry specifically, it's really good at kind of serving as an alarm system. So once you start worrying about something, you'll start experiencing those thoughts just coming back over and over and over again. Again, it's not enjoyable, but it's really focusing your attention on some threat that might be in the future. Um, and it's, you know, it's not very good at distinguishing between threats we can do something about and that we can't, and threats very likely and ones that aren't. Uh, and we can talk about how that can go wrong. But as a general function, it's really good that we worry about things so that we'll be paying attention and motivated to possibly prevent those outcomes that we worry about. Yeah, I always tell my students that uh, things like stress, uh, it, they it tells you what is important. If if we didn't, if we didn't have something signaling uh, that that this event, the situation is important, then we wouldn't have any arousal. We wouldn't, we you know, we wouldn't act on that situation. Yep, exactly right. Um, now, how does you know you study worry in a very specific context? Uh, you you look at a sort of. Um, students that are waiting to to find out if they got uh, into law school is one of the one of the specific ways that, that you study worry. Uh, how does worrying about life events uh, specifically fit into the universe of all the other life stressors, right? Because there's lots of things that cause stress, you know, losing a job, uh, uh, just having relationship difficulties. Worrying is kind of unique. It's, it's, there's this time, it's like, sort of like a fixed time period because you know that there's a beginning and an end. How does, how does um, waiting for news fit into the grand scheme of, of other life stressors? Uh, yeah, actually, I've sort of had to convince the field of social psychology that that is true, what you just said. Um, but I think I've done that at this point, And I certainly believe that it is unique. So when we think about waiting for some kind of news, I mean, literally songs have been written about this experience, books have been written, like it's clearly something that catches people's attention. Um, and I think the reason for that is that these periods where we, where something is kind of undetermined, there's an uncertainty about our future, um, and we can't do much about it. So our, I often use this overly clever phrase, <laughs> our fate is sealed, but not yet revealed. I don't love the poetry of that, but um, the idea is basically that there's something coming we know it's coming, but we don't know what it is and we can't do anything about it. And that combination of uncertainty and kind of helplessness or a lack of control seems to be particularly challenging for all of the ways that we would normally cope with stress. So there's lots of cases where there's something that's uncertain. Let's say we're preparing for a big exam. You mentioned uh, the bar exam that people take to become lawyers. So maybe you're studying for you know months, maybe years for this exam. You're uncertain. You don't know if you're going to pass it, but you have a lot of control. You can study more. You can do well in your classes. You can read more books about the bar exam. There's lots of things you can do. And that control gives us a sense of um, kind of empowerment. And it really helps us to cope with the stress of that uncertainty. Once you've taken that exam, you're still uncertain and the control is now gone. And so that now adds kind of a layer of challenge in terms of 
of stress. And it really uh, amplifies that worry. It kind of prevents it from doing that job that I talked about earlier. Now you can't do anything about that threat that might be coming in this case, failing the exam. You just kind of have to let worry spin itself out during this period in the case of California of four long months while you wait to find out your result in these uh, particular cases, lots of people do fail. California has a pretty high fail rate as uh, bar exams go. And so when we look at how people feel about failing the bar exam, they don't feel good. It's not the best day of their life, but at least that uncertainty is resolved. And so those feelings of worry, those feelings of anxiety, at least get to kind of ebb away. They're replaced by lots of other bad feelings, but it seems that we might as humans be a bit more situated, a little bit more um, kind of built to handle stressors where we actually know what's in front of us, as opposed to trying to kind of cope with something that's um, ephemeral and that we really don't know what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. So going back to the, like the evolutionary origins of why worry might be, you know, functional, um, is it just the case that, uh, that the benefits of worry in terms of keeping our attention, that, that, that trumps the other negative consequence, which is moving on to the next thing? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it's just a sort of balance of what keeps us alive versus what might make living not so fun, but, you know, nonetheless allows us to carry on. Um, in the case of worry, you know, for the most part, we don't, in most cases, I should say, there's lots of exceptions to this, but we don't feel worry, you know, at great length. We don't feel worry for years at a time, usually. Now, there are massive exceptions to that in terms of certain kinds of mental health concerns and also weird periods of time like COVID when we were all worrying for really a quite extended period of time. And we know that that's had some pretty negative effects on mental health. Um, but for the most part, the things we worry about come and go and, and maybe the bad thing happens and then we deal with that. Maybe it's good and we don't have to worry anymore. Uh, and so I think that, you know, when we think evolutionarily speaking, or even frankly, in present day, um, I think it's pretty clear to me that the benefits of worry probably outweigh the costs more often than not. And so it sticks around in our, uh, you know, in our DNA, sort of metaphorically speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, the your paradigm for looking at worry and waiting looks at waiting on news. I've I've read some other papers kind of looking at waiting, sort of waiting in a line. Uh, like, uh, is there is there are there categories of waiting in terms of how this topic is researched? Yeah, absolutely. So we do a lot of waiting. I've read surveys, you know, that sort of categorize how many hours humans spend waiting. Um, and I don't have those numbers in front of me, but it's a lot. That, again, won't surprise anybody. Um, and, and there are lots of different ways that we wait. There's the kind of big, scary, what I call high stakes waiting that I have mostly studied where uh, you're not just waiting for something to happen and you know what that thing is, reaching the front of the line, customer service picking up, your flight boarding or taking off. Uh, but you're waiting for something that could go any number of ways and might have, in some cases, really significant effects on how your life proceeds from there. So I call that high stakes waiting. And the other kind of, I guess, in contrast, low stakes waiting is more of what we do. I mean, when we ask people and we've done this, uh, you know, what's the most recent waiting that you've done? What do you think of when you think of waiting? People mostly talk about waiting in line, waiting in waiting rooms, waiting for people to show up, waiting for buses to show up. Mm -hmm. um, so that is probably the most common kind of waiting we do. But then when we ask people, okay, but what's really hard about waiting? Think of the hardest waiting period you've ever faced. Now you start hearing about waiting for medical test results for yourself or a loved one. You start hearing about waiting for college acceptance letters, things like that. Um, and I, for the most of my career, I've really only cared about those high stakes waiting periods. Uh, I've now just in the last 
two years and, and really moving forward, um, become more interested in that complete picture of impatience broadly defined and kind of how we manage those feelings of impatience um, when those are really the thing we're battling instead of worry in those high stakes waiting periods. Mm-hmm. Now, I, it seems as though feelings of control are very important with respect to how uncertainty impacts well-being. Uh, I've also seen that perhaps closure might might uh, play a role. So it's not, not necessarily that we need to feel in control. We just want the loop to be closed. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the real uh, driving force behind the impact that worry might have on our well-being? Yeah, I think it's uh, really two sides of a coin, if that, I think that analogy works here, um, in that uncertainty is really uh, a driving force as well as to what makes something like waiting difficult. So, you know, again, we just talked about waiting in line. The only uncertainty there is maybe how long it's going to take. Usually, you're usually going to get to the front of that line. That's not really uh, up for grabs. It's certain. It's just time. Um, whereas, again, the kind of waiting periods that I've studied, the outcome is uncertain. Uh, and so you don't have that closure, that lack of closure, that lack of kind of knowing how things are going to proceed uh, is really a huge driver of certainly worry, but also distress broadly defined. Uh, control is, you know, separate. You can have uh, uncertainty with and without control. You can have control with and without uncertainty, but not having control is also a problem. So, you know, when you're waiting in line, you have some control. You can stop waiting if it's not something you have to be waiting for. If you're waiting for a biopsy result, you really don't have that option. And so I think, you know, in the kinds of waiting periods that have really captured my attention for the last few decades, it's really when those two things are inextricably linked that I think we suffer the most. Now, some of your research looks at the type of individual that might be good or bad at dealing with uncertainty. What what do we know on that front? Yeah. So I think one thing I would say before I start kind of listing off personality traits, Mm -hmm. which I will do, um, Mm -hmm. is that waiting seems to be somewhat of an equalizer. So we have... We have data that suggests, for example, that although something like neuroticism, which is one of these big five personality traits that personality psychologists talk about, um, it's basically kind of a negative emotionality, an instability in our emotions um, that, you know, in fact, yes, people who are higher in neuroticism have a harder time waiting, but that neuroticism doesn't matter as much as it does in other kinds of stressful situations. It seems like waiting has a lot of kind of situational force where no matter who you are, waiting is really challenging. And we found that across a number of different personality traits, um, this kind of equalizing phenomenon. Having said that, there are people who wait easier than others. uh, And so neuroticism is one that comes up. I mean, that just kind of makes everything harder in life. So no surprise, it makes waiting harder too. Uh, Maybe a little bit more specific to waiting somewhat uh, is something like dispositional optimism, which just means kind of how, uh, as a person, how much you kind of generally expect things to go your way even if things don't go your way, that you expect things to be kind of okay in the end, you see the silver linings, that kind of uh, perhaps sometimes annoyingly cheerful disposition that some people have, that also helps us when we're waiting. Again, I have to say, optimism doesn't protect us from some of the really hard moments of waiting. Uh, So one thing I've studied is kind of the time course of a waiting period. Um, And one thing that we find over and over and over again is that the, the moment of truth, those final moments or hours or days is really where things get very intense, where we worry a lot, we're kind of frantically trying to cope. And those moments just really um, touch everyone. It doesn't matter if you're an optimist or a pessimist, neurotic or perfectly emotionally stable. In those final moments before you find out some big news, um, everyone's having a pretty hard time. So 
Um, so those are some of the things we've looked at. There's some other personality traits that kind of come and go from our data where, you know, if you're really conscientious, you might feel better during an achievement oriented kind of waiting period, like taking an exam, probably because you're just more confident you did well. Mm -hmm. um, whereas that doesn't seem to matter as much with something like a medical waiting period. Uh, we've also looked at, oh, sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, go ahead. We've also looked at gender um, and this uh, in the studies we've we've had, we don't have a lot of people identifying as non-binary or another gender. So here we're mostly comparing people who identify as men and women. And really consistently, we find that women report more worry. And I put a little heavy emphasis on the word report because we really just can't disentangle whether women worry more or they just feel more comfortable reporting that they worry more because of the way boys and girls tend to be socialized when they're kids. Yeah. And, and, you know, these might be evolving constructs. Like it might be that that's happening less. I'd like to think that, that, you know, boys are encouraged to feel emotions and girls aren't uh, necessarily treated as little emotional basket cases. <laughs> that's sort of, I think has been true historically speaking. Um, but certainly for the moment, at least that's the pattern that we see. Um, and again, I'm just not at all ready to say that women worry more. I think we just uh -huh. are more comfortable maybe talking about it or answering on a survey. Um, we've also looked at religiosity and that's been kind of an interesting one. I think I mean, frankly, my instinct, um, regardless of my own personal history with religion, is that, you know, surely at least religion or this commitment brings some level of comfort. It has a big social support component. You know, there's a sense of there's something greater than me that's kind of in control of things. How could that not help when we're waiting? Um, but interestingly, we haven't really found it to be particularly helpful, at least not consistently. Um, I'm starting to find that people who say they're more religious tend to report that they're more patient in general with more kind of daily hassles, like waiting in line. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be much help when we're waiting for big news, that high stakes waiting. So um, what I guess I would say in conclusion is there's some bits and pieces here and there that suggest people are better. Some people are better at waiting than others, but um, it seems to get all of us eventually. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit more about that, the neuroticism piece? Uh, I, it sort of, as soon as you said that, I'm like, okay, yeah, the, this sort of tendency to experience negative emotions, um, th th that kind of makes sense that it would be related to someone that was a good worrier or a bad worrier. Um, could you talk a little bit more about, about that trait? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely not a good one to have. I mean, you know, unfortunately with personality, you kind of are stuck with what you have to a point at least. Um, and I'm, you know, moderately high in neuroticism, so count me among them. Uh, it, it has three facets, basically. So one is uh, kind of a tendency towards more like depressive or kind of sad kind of affect uh, or emotion. Um, another is that more anxious piece. So people who are neurotic, high in neuroticism tend to be more anxious. Um, and then the third one, which is maybe the most interesting to me, is, is this emotional instability. So not just feeling bad a lot of the time, but being more variable in how you feel. Um, and I wonder if that might be the one that, well, it's one of the things that matters perhaps the most with waiting. And I think that because of a, a different project that uh, one of my former grad students, Melissa Wilson, who actually just got her PhD um, within the last week, uh, that she and I did. And that was looking at how volatility in our kind of experience of waiting might affect the degree to which we worry. And we found that people who bounce all over the place in their expectations during a waiting period, they're super optimistic one minute, they're really uh, pessimistic another minute, those folks tend to have a lot more trouble. Um, and we even did an experiment where we prompted people to be a bit more stable in their expectations versus more variable and found that, in fact, the ones who were kind of prompted to be more variable worried more about an outcome. In this case, I think it was about a, a national election. 
So it seems to reason then that perhaps one of the reason that people uh, reasons that people who are high in neuroticism might have more trouble waiting is because they're likely to also be more volatile and kind of more all over yeah. the place with their emotional experiences. It reminds me a little bit of of sort of the domain of self research because you know everyone knows self esteem you know you feel good about yourself you feel bad about yourself but rarely you know are you chatting in public and someone talks about self stability how how and and you see all kinds of of negative outcomes from having an unstable view of yourself it it makes sense that it might tie into a specific situation where you're worrying about an outcome. Maybe you, uh, you know, ir irrationally think the outcome is is affecting you know how people see you or something like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're exactly right that that stability of self or self consistency those are really important constructs or really important kind of experiences that we have as a person. Um, and sometimes you know more almost than our self esteem. Uh, and yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, waiting is these kinds of waiting periods that I've studied is really weird. I mean, nothing is changing. Other things in your life might be changing, right. but that that uncertainty is really quite fixed. It's quite stable. And and so I think it's it's really easy to overlook waiting as a difficult period because it's like what nothing's happening. Just you're just waiting. But in fact, of course, what I know as a person and what our research has shown over and over again is that it is not stable. People are all over the place, maybe because there isn't a lot of information coming in. And so it just lets your mind kind of uh, wreak havoc on your emotions. And so, you know, is, I think that is stability there, is really important. Is there something different between an intense worry and just looping thoughts? Right. Because it, it seems to me like there might be some sort of difference there where, you know, if, if you're, you know, uh, in, a, in a, you know, something you're waiting for news and uh, it's just there's a lot of weight on this decision. And so it makes sense that it would sort of absorb into your body and you feel that. But it, so, part of me thinks that that's different from sort of obsessively thinking the same thought over and over again. I'm curious if you've seen any differentiation in your research. I guess I wouldn't say in my research that we've been able to really look at that. It's not that we've tried and haven't found a difference. We just haven't attempted to answer that question. Um, but that is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, kind of where I deviate from some other people's definition of worry, where there really is in some corners of the research literature, just kind of a focus on only the thoughts. It's just those repetitive negative thoughts, persistent negative thoughts about the future. Um, and to me, maybe it doesn't like actually happen, but hypothetically speaking, it seems like that could be more of an annoyance than anything else. And instead, what you know, I think we think when we think about worry is it's not just an annoyance. I mean, it is a sort of deep-seated sense of I don't know, panic or anxiety or dread, at least, um, that kind of goes with those looping thoughts. They're not just happening. They're bringing about a really clear emotional state. And to me, separating them is not as useful as kind of thinking of those as kind of a whole package deal, because I think they're almost always packaged. I see. Now, uh, a great deal of your research focuses on the strategies uh, for dealing with uncertainty. Uh, I, I think I saw somewhere how to how to wait well um, was, was, was one of the phrases that I saw. Um, could you start by talking about our default strategies when uh, for for waiting for news that that might not be the best approach yeah i do think that we are not well equipped we humans um to deal with this particular experience of waiting and it's for lots of the reasons we've talked about it's you know it's just not something that we um 
I don't think it kept us alive to be good at sort of managing worry. Again, worry is trying to do us a favor. It's trying to point us towards something that we should pay attention to and prevent. And so it's really these kind of odd, unique situations where that threat is there and we just can't do anything about it that, you know, that worry gets stuck. And so our toolbox is not very well equipped there. Um, it isn't to say we don't try to do stuff. <laughs> I think one of the things that people tell us over and over that they try to do is just distract themselves, take their mind off of it. You know, there's some conscious recognition that like nothing is changing. There's nothing I can do about this. I should just try not to think about it. Uh, but easier said than done, you know, worries, alarm bell is just going off in the back of your mind. And so, you know, maybe when you get busy at work, you can pull that off, but the middle of the night might creep up on you. Uh, it's also the case that we're not necessarily great at intuiting what kind of distractions are helpful. So we might try to distract ourselves thinking that the best thing to do is to veg out on the couch watching TV, which I am totally in favor of in some cases, but really just isn't going to probably capture our attention well enough to pull it away from especially a really intense period of worry. Uh, I am perfectly capable of watching TV and worrying at the same time. I think most of us are. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, one thing that we've uh, studied quite a bit, and this was prompted exactly by this realization that our, over and over our participants were saying, I'm trying to distract myself, but I'm it's not working. And I'm even worrying more, if anything, when I try to do that, that we needed to kind of teach people how to how to distract themselves better. And that's how we found our way to, to the research on flow, which is complex. And it's kind of a wild and wacky research area that I'm happy to talk about. But ultimately, you can think of flow as just a really exquisite, perfect kind of distraction. It It is uh, be, doing some activity that just captures your attention. You're completely in the moment. You can't think about anything else really because you're like one with the activity that you're doing. And so worries fall away, you lose track of time. It's really perfectly suited to kind of getting through those waiting periods. Um, I think another thing that we might try to do that we're not necessarily very good at is manage our ex expectations. Um, and that's something I've studied for really my whole career. It's, it's really what I became a, a psychology researcher to study. You know, we we manage our expectations quite actively during waiting periods where we're thinking, well, maybe I should just hope for the best. Oh, no, maybe I should prepare myself for the worst. Um, and, and again, getting into that volatile state of bouncing between optimism and pessimism can be really uncomfortable. The best advice I have from, you know, nearly 20 years of research on that topic is try to maintain optimism as long as you can. But let pessimism in at the end. So in those moments of truth, when you're about to learn the news. Because actually that pessimism can really do you a favor. It, it helps you sort of prepare for the worst. It puts you in kind of a protective stance so you can hear the news if it's bad and kind of be ready to cope with it instead of just being paralyzed. Um, so those are some of the, the ways I think that we can optimize some of the strategies that we may not be as good at naturally. Yeah, I remember thinking about this topic very early on in my uh, experience in psychology, which is... Uh, to say that, you know, I had this quote, which is, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, where you want to maintain the emotionality that's positive, but at the same, you know, at the same time, you know, taking steps to that may maybe it's more on the practical side. I'm going to take practical steps to prepare for the worst. Um, and you actually mentioned it, one of your articles, you actually say, assume, assume the best brace for the worst. Um, and, and so that idea is linked to this kind of changing, uh, landscape between when you first, uh, complete the activity and when you have to wait for the result, could you dive in deep into that waiting period and talk a little bit about how your mindset can uh, you know, how you can optimize your mindset during that waiting period? 
Absolutely. Um, so when we talk about bracing, bracing for the worst in the context of social psychology, um, my graduate advisor, James Shepard, uh, kind of defined that term pretty specifically. And I think it's a useful definition, although we use it more broadly. Um, and that definition really is about a change in our expectations over time. So one thing we know very well in social psychology is that people tend to be optimists in general. Uh, and there's some cultural variation there. There's certainly personal variation. But as a general rule, humans tend to expect the best more so even than is warranted by the evidence. And we see that time and time again in our studies. When we're asking students at the beginning of a semester, how do you think you'll do on that upcoming midterm? They're like, I'm going to ace it. I'm going to be in every class. I'm going to go to those office hours. This is going to be the best exam of my life. Um, so they all really predict a pretty high score. Once they take the exam, they get pretty realistic. But interestingly, right before they find out their grade, suddenly they slide into really unrealistic pessimism. And that's what we call that bracing for the worst, um, which is this kind of process of, really letting go of that optimism and getting into more of that protective stance. So again, that term really has referred for, I don't know, approaching 20 years now, 30 years, actually, wow, time flies, um, referred specifically to this kind of process of, of managing our expectations over time. But you, you're picking up on something else that's really important, and that is it's not just about expectations. Those expectations can and perhaps should lead us to do some preparation work, logistical preparation work. So let's say you're waiting for a medical test result. You're really worried about what the result will be. One thing that you can do to kind of um, take back a little bit of that feeling of control from the universe is you can think about what 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 will I do if the news is bad? What do I need to know? How can I prepare myself? So let me make sure I really know what my insurance covers. Let me think about my leave policies at work. How will my kids get to school if I have to be in treatment for some period of time? And I've talked to lots of people, including participants in our studies, who find that uh, that kind of preparing process to be really comforting in a time that comfort is, you know, pretty hard to come by. Um, you can also prepare to cope. So maybe that you've checked off all those kind of ducks in a row boxes. And now another thing you can do is think, all right, I'm going to go to the doctor that day, or I'm going to sign on to the website and find out if I pass that exam that night. What do I want to be in place to make sure I don't completely come apart if the news is bad? So have your friends over to have a commiseration party when you find out if you pass the bar exam. You know, make sure that you bring someone with you. This is a very common uh, piece of advice, and it's really good advice. Bring someone with you to the doctor's office uh, who can be there in case the news is bad and you need a little um, extra support in that moment. Um, and so those sorts of planful processes are really useful. And I think it does kind of stem back to that, that original definition of bracing for the worst. If we let in the possibility that the news will be bad, even though that doesn't feel good, emotionally speaking, it kind of prompts us to do that preparative work. And that can be helpful in lots of ways. It you know, turns out that if you think about the possibility you might have cancer, if you find out you have cancer in that doctor's office, you might be ready to have the conversation about treatment a bit quicker than if you're having to like deal with the hit that you weren't expecting for some period of time mm -hmm. as just one example. Um, yeah. So all that preparation work works pretty well. In fact, um, when I'm asked to give advice essentially about waiting, which, you know, always feels like I'm uh, doing a disservice to all the complex data, of course, that I have, but um, my advice is basically, is the worry telling you to prepare and some, well, to, to do something to prevent the bad outcome. If it is do, do that, obviously, if you can't do that, do your best to prepare in other ways, things like, making sure you know what will happen if you get the bad news, try to set up your coping resources. Once you've checked off all those boxes, really all you're left with is just trying to feel better in the moment, trying to get some sleep, trying not to be completely distracted all the time. And, and we've come up with some ways to help people do that as well. The 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 distraction piece is interesting because it, it reminds me of sort of uh, some of the newer findings related to stress, which is to 
you know, go inward towards the stress, embrace the stress rather than see it as something that needs to be combated. Uh, that was one of the first things I, I thought of when I was reading through this arousal around uncertainty. I'm curious if you think that in the grand scheme of things, distraction, even though it, it may be effective at times under the right circumstances, is it possible that distraction is can be dangerous in the sense that it may reinforce the idea that you're avoiding something that's important? You're really picking up on something that, that I've been interested in for quite some time, and we really don't have great answers, but I'll, I'll kind of give you the playing field of where we are right now. And that is the relative benefits of mindfulness versus something like flow or really good distraction. Um, and those two states are really similar. I mean, in some research, you'll see people almost conflate them or kind of treat them as, you know, basically interchangeable. But to me, they're really different. I mean, they have things in common. When you're when you're in flow, when you're in a really good distracted, distracted state, um, you're in the moment. I mean, you were definitely in the current moment. You're not thinking about the past. You're not thinking about the future. And that's a hallmark of mindfulness as well. But there's a big difference between being kind of out of your mind and, and really distracted by some activity that's kind of outside of yourself versus uh, focusing on really what your thoughts are, letting them go in a very kind of active, intentional way, focusing your attention on something like your breath maybe, but but paying a lot of attention to the experiences you're having that is really quite contrasting to what flow is like. And I think that they have different benefits. So we found that both are really beneficial in waiting periods and lots of other experiences of stress. Uh, both are really good for your well-being, both mindfulness practice and flow. Uh, but I, admittedly, without a lot of data to support this, um, mm -hmm. kind of think of them as, as having slightly different roles to play, such that mindfulness does take a bit of practice. I mean, doing a mindfulness meditation just out of the blue is great. It's definitely helpful, probably lowers your heart rate a little bit, might give you a moment of peace. But to really get the benefits of mindfulness, to kind of get that groove in your mind where you don't really let yourself kind of run away with worries or rumination, where you're kind of able to stay in the moment, able to observe thoughts a bit before you react to them or observe things in your environment before you react to them, that groove takes some practice. And so I think mindfulness isn't as easy to get the benefits from, at least the best benefits, um, to be able to really engage with the stress, as you said, in a way that's healthy and doesn't kind of take you down with it. But it's really good if you can do it. And it's something I think worth practicing so that you have it when those moments arise. Flow is a great in the moment you know, antidote to really intense worry. If you are just sick to your stomach with worry, if you just cannot focus because you're so worried about what's coming, you know, you're not going to start in that moment of mindfulness practice that's going to do you a lot of good. So I think in those moments, frankly, distraction might be the best you have. Um, and if you're in a pretty short waiting period, you might be able to kind of distract your way through it to at least survive the experience, emotionally speaking, um, without too much detriment. But you know, if we're talking about like COVID that you're worrying about, and that's years of uncertainty, obviously you can't just kind of check out for that long period of time. And then practicing something like mindfulness uh, where you can kind of sit comfortably with worry, I think is really the thing to, um, to kind of put your resources towards. Mm -hmm. Now, the, uh, my last question relates to, I, I, I think it's a, an area of research that is new to you, which is this area of, of patience. Uh, could you uh, tell us tell us what we need to know about patience and how that uh, might extend what we know about uncertainty? Yeah, it's a great way to put it, to extend what we know about uncertainty. I mean, I, I um, haven't made a big move in my research because obviously waiting and worry and patience and impatience are, are very closely related. Um, but I do sort of think about it differently. So, you know, in my research thus far, for the most part, I've been focused on worry, and that is a particular kind of emotional cognitive experience. It's 
uh, it often co-occurs with something like impatience, but I think it is quite different from impatience. And I think we can kind of intuit that those are really different experiences. So really in the last two years or so, I've, I've hooked up with a bunch of really smart people. Um, one, uh, Sarah Schnicker, who's been studying impatience for really a long time, or really studying patience, I should say, um, for quite a long time. And she's brought together this really awesome collaboration of psychologists and philosophers and religious scholars who all think about patience quite a lot in really different ways. And, and in fact, people have been thinking about patience and philosophy, one could say at least since Aristotle, maybe longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and any every major religion in the world, their holy books talk about patience somewhat quite extensively, some of them quite extensively. Um, and so this seems to be something people have thought a lot about across time and across fields. And so we're really bringing this group of people together to kind of put our, our minds on it and, and try to understand what patience is, how do we get it? <laughs> should we have it? When should we not have it? Uh, my particular piece of that as a psychology researcher has really ended up focusing on emotion. And when I say that, what I mean is that as my lab started thinking about what is patience, we got kind of stuck, frankly. And I think a lot of other people have gotten stuck too, which is why we've been thinking about it for thousands of years without maybe an enormous amount of progress. Um, <laughs> but we kind of had a breakthrough when I, I, it's lost to history who did it or who said it. But someone in the lab said, well, hang on, what about impatience? What is impatience? And we got thinking about that. And really what we've come to claim, I guess we're testing it extensively right now, is that impatience is, is an emotional experience. It's a it's an emotion in itself. It has all the hallmarks of, of an emotion. There's a kind of reaction to a situation that you're in that creates that specific feeling of impatience. That reaction is one of thinking this delay is going on too long. <laughs> it is taking too long for this thing to happen. Why is it still happening? Why has this thing not happened yet? So kind of an inappropriate or unreasonable delay of some sort triggers that feeling of impatience. Mm-hmm. Uh, impatience has pretty obvious and familiar uh, physical expressions, which is another thing we look for when we're trying to claim that something is an emotion. Uh, you can imagine tapping your fingers or tapping your feet or kind of getting um, short with someone, honking your horn, kind of impulsive behavior. Uh, and so that emotional experience is really common. It's common for waiting in line. It's common for waiting for test results. It's common in lots of different circumstances. When, when a colleague is going on too long, when a child is doing something for the 18th time in a row, even though you told them to stop. Um, and so we have that experience all the time. And, and then we turn to the question of what is patience? We claim at least that patience is basically the process of regulating impatience. So it really only exists kind of in reaction um, to impatience. Uh, And so then we start thinking about things like emotion regulation and how we as humans try to regulate various different kinds of emotions. Uh, Things like distraction come into play here, but also reappraisal. So thinking differently about the situation, maybe think about how you're not just stuck in traffic, but it's an opportunity to get more um, uh, of that podcast that you were listening to finished, or, you know, maybe it's a time to practice that meditation that you've been meaning to practice. So if you can think differently about the situation that can reduce that impatience, Um, And there's lots of other ways that we regulate our emotions that come into play. So, you know, I I often say that our way of thinking about patients in my lab and my little piece of this big collaboration isn't quite as poetic or kind of magical as as this virtuous concept that lots of philosophers talk about. Um, And I don't think it's um, necessarily incompatible to talk about patients as a virtue while also thinking about really how it works, kind of boots on the ground in daily life. What does that look like, which is what I'm more interested in. Um, so we're just starting out this collaboration. We're about to submit a grant that hopefully will fund five more years of research where we're all working together to try to figure this out. And, uh, I'm pretty excited about what might come out of it. Yeah. So we, we didn't really get into it when discussing uncertainty, but, uh, when I hear about patience and impatience, um, I get curious about how early, early childhood experiences kind of to a certain extent might 
create a set point for how much uh, you're willing to wait for something. Um, it, it might not be that simple, but you know, part of me thinks that if you grow up in an environment where um, your needs are met quickly, that may lead you to be more impatient. Whereas you grow up in an environment where your needs aren't met uh, quickly, that that might push you in another direction. Obviously, that's that's just speculation. But I, I was curious of, uh, as to your thoughts. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting piece of it that we haven't thought as much about, but we have thought a lot about and are about to start doing some really cool research on, um, first of all, just what does it look like for kids to be more or less uh, patient or impatient? Uh, what kinds of, you know, temperamental kind of stuff that might be kind of baked in predicts people, kids being patient or impatient. And then also very importantly, what can parents do or caregivers do to kind of build patience in kids, which, you know, might have a very immediate positive effect for your relationship with your child in the moment, but also certainly we hope would build kind of a capacity for patients and, you know, a set of skills maybe for managing those inevitable moments of impatience as we go through life as adults. So we've got some really cool work going on that. Um, I'll name check another collaborator, Liz Davis, who's uh, in my department, is a developmental psychologist, very interested in emotions and emotion regulation in children. Um, and so we're just about to start uh, doing some research with a data set she has where there are videos of kids from ages four to 11 years old playing this really interesting game with a researcher that they call the Tower of Patience. It's, just, it's a Jenga game, basically, but where the experimenter, the researcher, starts taking their turns slower and slower and slower. Oh. And I've only seen a couple of these videos, but boy, are they funny. Kids react very differently. Some of them just stoically sit and just wait for their turn. Others are just bouncing out of their seats. They're clapping their hands. They're slapping the arms of the chair. They're kind of poking the experimenter, like, why aren't you going? Why aren't you going? I'll help you. I'll do your turn for you. Uh, and so we're about to start you know, digging into those videos trying to understand, you know, what what might make a kid more or less impatient, what makes the one poke the researcher and the other sit there quietly. And um, we also have, she had them wired up with all kinds of stress physiology. So we'll be able to kind of see what was going on in their bodies during that time. And we have lots of information from their parents. And so we're really interested in kind of putting all those pieces together to understand how if at all, our parents socializing their kids to be more patient. This seems to be a really, I don't have kids, I should say, but seems to be something that comes up a lot when I'm around friends right. who have kids. Um, and in fact, actually, I have a, re a research collaborator in Malawi, um, a recent collaborator who's done some really cool work looking at idioms, like cultural idioms and the languages of his country. Uh, and it turns out that there, and I strongly suspect here as well, or in English as well, I should say, many of these kind of idioms that we use, these kind of, you know, cute little lessons that we might kind of teach ourselves or be taught as kids have to do with patience, you know, a wash pot never boils, that sort of mm. thing. And so I think this is something that's really key, actually, to kind of developing a, a good kid who turns into a good adult, but we don't know that much about it. There's these, you know, early, really famous experiments, the marshmallow studies by Walter Michel, where you know, you sit a kid down with a marshmallow and you say, you can eat it if you want to, but if you don't, I'm going to be back in a minute and you'll get two marshmallows. You know, and there's some really cool findings around the kids that can wait for that second marshmallow seem to probably do better as adults compared to the ones who just, you know, shove it in their mouth the moment the researcher is gone. That's very related to the kind of stuff we're looking at. But I think there's a broader picture that we can paint and uh, yeah, stay tuned. There's a lot more on that coming soon. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this uh, patient's research. Uh, your your work on uncertainty has been uh, fascinating. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Kate Sweeney. This was really fun. Thanks so much. For more on Kate, 
visit katesweeney.com. That's K-A-T-E-S-W-E-E-N-Y.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? Mm-hmm.